Welcome to Women of Marvel. I'm Ellie Pyle. I'm Angelique Roche. And I'm Judy Stevens. Last weekend was Halloween, and everyone probably still has a little bit of spooky stuff on their brain. So I thought we'd dive into something that is a little bit spooky, but also very close to my heart, witches. Witches have a complicated history in stories and in real life. We can see witches dating back to ancient legends through Shakespeare, modern mythology like the Wizard of Oz, which all of that pretty much describes my childhood. And they are in so much of pop culture these days. We also have a ton of great witches in the Marvel Universe. I wanted to talk to a couple of experts about these characters, the witches of pop culture more broadly, and how that compares to witchcraft in actual history. First up, I talked to Beth Pollard, a history professor at San Diego State University. She researches classical witchcraft and how older archetypes show up in modern pop culture, specifically in comics. I am so excited right now. I know you're going to be talking about witches and pop culture and feminism and how everything kind of like shifts and how we see witches. And it's just really, really incredible. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a class like that in school. I would love to have learned about all this stuff. Right? Plus, Beth is a huge Marvel fan. So she's the perfect person to help us understand all of our Marvel witches and how they fit into the classic witchy tropes. Let's listen to that conversation now. First of all, I will say you're who I want to be when I grow up. So I'm very excited about this conversation we're about to have. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your research? Great. So in graduate school, I had what I called my feminist epiphany. And I decided what I wanted to do was look at women's expressions of power through religion. And so because of that, I started looking into women's use of magic in antiquity. So I look at Roman witches, essentially. And the heart of my research was looking at representations, so fiction, art, historical narrative of what women might do that would be called witchcraft, and then the reality, so actual spells that women might use. And so essentially imaginings of witches versus what women were really doing that could get them accused of being a witch. So um, it's not that far of a jump from that to looking at representations of witches in modern comics. And that added layer of, are there similarities there because the modern comic makers are drawing intentionally on ancient stereotypes? Or is it just that archetypes work really well? You know, scary women in the woods, a vixen enchantress, a woman who just wants power. So let's talk a little bit about witches in popular culture. How has that kind of evolved over time? Yeah, that's a great question. It depends on what you count as popular culture, right? I would say we need to start at least in antiquity to think about what were women doing in ancient fiction that would make them seem like witches. So that's things like, oh my gosh, they do so many terrible things. Uh, they transform men into various animals. They might mess with the weather. They might threaten children or threaten childbearing, interfere with someone else's childbearing. They will gather noxious, you know, creepy ingredients to work their spells. They do necromancy, speaking of creepy stuff. That's there in some of, at least to me, some of the earliest pop culture. So Roman pop culture on what witches could do. And it's shocking how consistent this remains over time. You've got witches out in the woods doing creepy things, flying backwards on goats, things I probably can't say in a Marvel podcast. And then you move forward from that. Again, I'm thinking of art, like the pre 
Pre-Raphaelites, a uh, beautiful art movement around 1900, drawing those images of witches that you probably think of, you know, I mean, just these beautiful images that tap into antiquity intentionally. And then you've got, you know, starting in the mid 20th century to today, Disney witches, you know, examples being Maleficent, mm-hmm. the Wicked Witch of the West, you I guess technically isn't a Disney witch, but these witches like the Wicked Witch of the West that are doing some of the similar things, you know, crossing boundaries, threatening children or young women, attempting to maintain their own power at all cost. So many different representations over time. But again, it often boils down to women who are deemed to be scary because they're trying to claim some kind of power for themselves. Though you mentioned The Wizard of Oz, and I have heard it said, you can tell me if this is wrong, that that is one of the first times that we start to see the word witch also associated with good characters. Which is not to say that there aren't good women using magic potentially in earlier stories, but that the word witch wasn't necessarily rolled into that. Yeah, correct. Usually if you're calling somebody a witch, the reason you're doing it is to connote something negative about her. So how does Marvel and Marvel's witches kind of fit into this evolution? Such a great question. Marvel has so many terrific witches, of course, right? So of course there's Agatha Harkness, right? I just adore Agatha Harkness. And I should say that from the very beginning of WandaVision, I saw that Agnes character and I was thinking, why are they calling her Agnes? Her name should be Agatha. Surely that's Agatha Harkness. Uh, And uh, so I knew it was Agatha all along. But I think Agatha really is most like the stereotypical classical witch in so many different ways. For instance, there's the caring for children that comes right at the heart of her introduction to comic lore. She's there to be a nanny of sorts to Invisible Girl's uh, child. So Agatha cares for baby Franklin. Agatha sort of being in the middle of that child care role, but she's kind of creepy and she's allowing Sue to go off and do something. This issue of old woman getting in the midst of childbearing woman who was trying to balance her role as mother and person with her Mm -hmm. own abilities is very witchy. I was just looking at Agatha's first appearance in Marvel today is pretty great because the thing goes straight for the stereotype when he sees her. He says, she reminds me of that dame in the fairy tale who invited kids into her cottage and made cookies out of them, you know, the way that only Ben the thing can say. And at the end of the issue, he's the one who sees the tales of old Salem on the coffee table. And Agatha plays with that. And she says, they wouldn't really leave their child with a witch, would they? So right from the introduction, Introduction of Agatha, uh, there's almost an intentional tapping into those stereotypes of a witch. And then, of course, there's all the stuff that Agatha can do. You know, if you look at the list, she can bind. She has elemental control, because, of course, one of the things witches do is control the weather. She can divine the future. She can shapeshift herself and others. She has a deep reservoir of magical knowledge. She really is the one that is most like a classical witch in all of these many ways. And, of course, I would be remiss since I started this answer by talking about uh, WandaVision to say that one of the features of witches is often that they come in pairs, an older woman passing on transmitting that knowledge to a younger woman who is coming into her own. And of course, that's right at the heart of the relationship between Agatha Harkness and the Scarlet Witch. So that's one example, Agatha Harkness, my favorite example. She's just terrific. Yeah, Agatha's a great example. 
Who else do you see as a good example of which archetypes in Marvel? So another example, uh, Nico, right? Nico Minoru from Runaways. One of the things that's really striking about her, I already mentioned the relationship between Agatha Harkness and Sue, right? And Agatha Harkness and Scarlet Witch. But Nico, of course, she's really notable because part of her power comes from the passing of ritual magical knowledge from her mother to her. And so again, that notion of transmission of knowledge from older woman to younger woman is very much a part of Nico's story. It's part of that standard archetype, right, of daughter displacing mother. But here you have magic at the heart of that change, that displacement. And central to that power, of course, is that staff of one, you know, something to act as a conduit for power, right? One of the things I find really striking about that staff of one is that it's really unusual in that only once spell limitation, which makes Nico all the more fascinating in that as a ritual expert, she has to innovate every single time, right? She's not just using a spell book where she memorizes a bunch of spells and she can cast them, but because of the way the staff of one works, every spell is an innovation. And her ritual expertise has to come not from an existing body of knowledge that she's repeating and refining, but it comes from her innovation on the spot, trying to come up with a clever way to achieve the outcome. And it's more about the meaning of what she's trying to do, as opposed to having memorized a recipe. Exactly. I think that's one of the fascinating things about Nico, apart from the transmission of mother-daughter, but that staff of one and the innovation that she's continually having to do. Well, and Nico's an interesting case of somebody who had already kind of identified with the idea of a witch before she discovered her own powers. Exactly. I mean, she's just so, so terrific. She's kind of a proto-Wiccan, right? And she's, you know, figuring out her identity in so many different ways. And then she finds she has access to this truly witchy identity and then makes it her own. So we've covered Agatha, Scarlet Witch, Nico. Who else do we have? So, of course, there's Enchantress, right? She's terrific. I think I mentioned in the model for witches, one of the things they do is they transgress relationships. They try to get folk to love them or to create erotic, romantic relationships where they aren't otherwise. Another thing that witches do through time is get in the midst of competition, especially competition between women. And Enchantress is right in the middle of all of that, right? She's constantly in competition with men and with women for various objects of affection or particular outcomes that she wants. One of the earliest times we see her is trying to you know, beat out Lady Sif for Thor's affections. That mushing together of magic and sexuality is such a standard trope for witches through time. And Enchantress just, she embodies that like literally with her voluptuous self. Speaking of that transmission of knowledge between women, Enchantress, of course, gets her knowledge from a woman that Thor calls a witch woman, but from the Norn queen Cardilla. So again, you get that transmission of power and knowledge between women as being a witchy component. And talking about 
tracing characters back into the fictions of antiquity and later, you know, we also have characters like Morgan Le Fay, who is in the Marvel Universe, but there are certainly sources for her elsewhere in the history of storytelling. Yeah, Morgan, good old Morgan. You know, the interesting thing about Morgan is I think that it's a great example of the storytellers taking a shortcut, right? Not having to build out a huge backstory to tell the story. Because, of course, Enchantress, you're having to create a whole backstory. You know, maybe leaning into Nordic ideas of Freya or whatnot, but you're still inventing a backstory for Enchantress. The same thing with Agatha Harkness, maybe leaning a little bit into what people think they know about Salem or creepy old women in the woods, but still Agatha Harkness is her own thing. With Morgan, there's very much a, let's just tap into standard Arthurian legend. Everything you think you know about Morgan Le Fay, that applies. Half-sister to King Arthur, apprentice to Merlin, earth magic shapeshifter, yeah, all of that. And we're just going to use that as a shortcut to be able to do things with her, to use her as a character. So while Morgan is wonderful, she's seductress, she's powerful, she gives a long history to witchcraft in the Marvel comics, you know, going back 1,500 years. One of the things I like best about her is her relationship to the Darkhold, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly powerful spellbook that makes its way into multiple Marvel and MCU storylines. Yeah, so talk a little bit about that. You also study spell books, and the Darkhold is a great example of one. Talk to me about the Darkhold and spell books in general. I think the Darkhold is terrific. It was one of the things I most liked about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. used the Darkhold incredibly well. And as soon as there was this spell book that manifested what the reader needed to see that has made its way through tens of thousands of years, has a, you know, a distant past, but also a, a nearer past of going through Babylonian, Egyptian, Jewish knowledge bases. And this is very much in line with the kind of spell books that people who look at magic and antiquity, like I do, that we examine to try to understand the practices from antiquity. So one of the ones that I'm really interested in is this one one spell book that gets called PGM, which is Latin for the words Greek magical papyri. So it's PGM 36. And it's this scroll that you roll out and it's got this wonderful relationship between word and image. So it's illustrated. And so it's got lots of magical spells written in columns across the long scroll. And there's images together with words and trying to understand the relationship between those images and the words and some of the images even have words embedded in them i think that comic book reading is going to be a great way to try to better understand what's happening in that text and how the images and words work together so what i love about the dark hold is just that it appears so many times right agents of shield it's in runaways we already talked about nico but the fact that you've got a spell book that is passing on this long history of magic and that we have similar grimoires or spell books from the ancient world and that comic book reading, that relationship between word and image might help us to understand this text in modern scholarship. It's just neat. It's so many things coming together. Well, and similarly, you know, the idea of putting arcane knowledge into pictures, you know, you can trace that through the tarot. You can find it all kinds of places in occult scholarship. 
Yes, of course. And one of our early visions of Agatha Harkness is her drawing an elaborate magical set of symbols on the ground, placing herself in the midst of it to undertake a spell. So yeah, that relationship of word, image, and the use of image to achieve something. Very powerful. So let's talk about Wanda since we since we of didn't. Let's, let's make sure we don't forget about Wanda. Tell me all your Wanda thoughts. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, of course, we've got Scarlet Witch, Wanda Maximoff. She's trained by Agatha. We've talked about Agatha. But that idea of the older woman, younger woman trope, the transmission of knowledge from the powerful Agatha Harkness to the young Wanda Maximoff, that's very much part and parcel of what witches do. Similarly, the range of skills. You know, my kids play video games, and they always talk about a character as being OP, so overpowered. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, Scarlet Witch is the (laughs) ultimate op person she really is yeah she is so overpowered it's almost unfair how does anyone beat scarlet witch she's got every one of the powers that you can imagine of a classical witch and more and is that part of the reason that you think that we so often find scarlet witch is her own worst enemy yes exactly because it would be tough to beat her by any means because again almost every power you can imagine for a witch and more she has and so it is very tough to go toe-to-toe with Scarlet Witch and when and that's why she so often has these almost metaphysical battles where she enters in a, a different realm to struggle with something that's internal to herself and not an external force yeah i was just looking at scarlet witch final hex and yep yeah, this is one of the moments where she's uh, going on her mystical journey on witch's road this is from 2017 yes from 2017 this is james robinson's scarlet witch but that representation of her taking essentially this internal journey in a different dimension, but also tapping into that maiden mother crone imagery that's so much at the heart of understanding of witches. So, of course, the crone being Agatha Harkness, the mother being Scarlet Witch's mother, and the maiden being Wanda. And so you've got this fantastic tapping into the threefold, but that interior journey that Scarlet Witch is having to take to struggle with who she is and what she's done. So I I think you're exactly right that frequently her greatest enemy is herself, unless, of course, she goes toe-to-toe with Agatha like she did in WandaVision. Certainly by the time we get to Salem, which was its own situation, there is this idea that men can also be witches. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on kind of how that has evolved. Certainly we have male magic practitioners in the Marvel Universe who don't necessarily refer to themselves as witches. But just if you have any thoughts about that, I'm interested. Yeah, of course. No, that's a great question. It syncs up with uh, the ancient world as well, with the Roman world. There's often that question of whether men can tap into the same kind of power and yet not be charged with witchcraft, whereas women who tap into that power, because by doing so, they are claiming power they otherwise ought not to have, that they are going to end up getting accused of being a witch. And so that trope goes back thousands of years. You have the same power that a man can wield. If a woman uses some sort of ritual expertise to try to achieve that same power or get that same outcome, she's going to end up 
being accused of being a witch. Now, flash forward to the modern world and representations of witches. I think it is really striking that um, there are real differences between, say, Scarlet Witch and Doctor Strange, right? Doctor Strange, similarly, ridiculously OP, but that ability to manipulate reality and use ritual powers uh, and you know various sorts of expertise for which he has trained. Yeah, that's a real difference, actually. The way that Doctor Strange trains, you know, goes to this almost otherworldly place and trains with a teacher over time to learn these very clear ways of acting to achieve the manipulations of reality that he's able to achieve. The relationship between somebody like Scarlet Witch and Agatha Harkness, it seems to be almost more organic, almost like Agatha is asking Scarlet to dig into herself and find that power, that it's not about book learning or manipulations or practice that's going to get it done, but it's about digging into self and makes me think of Nico as well, that idea of digging into self and finding that power and manifesting it out of one's own being. Talking about that, do you think there's a difference in the representation of witchcraft as something where you are pulling power in from without versus pulling power out from within? Oh, yeah, that's definitely, definitely clear in Marvel representations and in classical representations. There's differing attitudes towards magic, whether it's a a man or a woman doing it. There's different representations, whether it's something that is done based on learned expertise versus something that is done based on passed down ideas. There's definitely differences based on whether what you were doing is a part of an existing tradition of practice, almost a religion, or something that you're doing based on your own innovation, which gets back to Nico again with that innovation. And, you know, there's these dichotomies that often get talked about with respect to magic. But yeah, I do think there is that, you know, are you marshalling something from the outside and putting it to a particular purpose? There's that kind of magic, but then there's that which you generate from within. And I do think there's a gendered component to that with women doing the from within and male magic users marshalling external powers to make something happen, both in modern comics and in ancient representations. I really enjoyed this conversation and come back to share more thoughts with us anytime. I would love to, Ellie. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I've really enjoyed talking about my ancient witches and their modern manifestations in Marvel. So Beth talked a lot about Agatha Harkness, who is her favorite. (laughs) Agatha and her coven were persecuted in the Salem witch trials. But what actually happened in Salem in the 1600s? I talked to Rachel Chris Stone, the director of education at the Salem Witch Museum and a historian in her own right. She helped burst some myths about Salem and we talked a bit more about pop culture witches. So we have a character with some background in Salem in the Marvel Universe, Agatha Harkness. She settled in Salem in the 1600s, formed a coven of witches, and then she and her coven were persecuted by the Puritans in the Salem Witch Trials. Our version of the Salem Witch Trials is a bit different than what actually happened. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what really happened? 
So the Salem witch trials are the biggest witch trial to take place in colonial New England, which is why today when we think of a witch trial, we almost always think Salem as opposed to, for example, Hartford, Connecticut. This took place in just under about a year, a little bit over, we could say. Everything gets rolling in January of 1692 when two girls become very sick. Their illness is mysterious. No one can quite figure out what's wrong with them. It goes on for about a month. The village doctor is brought in and he diagnoses their illness as the work of bewitchment, which in the 17th century was actually, you know, relatively normal. This sounds crazy to us today, but at that time, if someone was sick in that way, it was kind of a next natural step to say perhaps they're being harmed by the supernatural or invisible world. And things really start to escalate from there. Three women are named as potential witches who may be harming the girls. And they're who we might call the usual suspects during a witchcraft accusation. They're three women that don't quite fit into society. So they are a beggar, a slave, and a woman who had married beneath her station. She'd married one of her servants. And on top of that, hadn't been to church in some time, which for the Puritans is a big red flag. They're accused of witchcraft. They're brought in. The first two women, the beggar, whose name is Sarah Good, and the woman who had married beneath her station, Sarah Osborne, both maintain their innocence. They say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I am not a witch. You've got the wrong girl. But Tichaba, who is the slave and is actually the slave in the home of the sick girls, pretty quickly confesses. She says, sure, yeah, you got me. I am a witch. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. And there are other witches in the community as well. Now, Tichaba probably confesses because she doesn't have another option. She knows no one's coming to her defense. No one's coming to her aid. And she's probably not coming out of this, you know, cleared of all charges, free to go. So she does what is ultimately the smart thing to do, and she tells them what she knows they want to hear. And this triggers what we would call a chain reaction witch hunt, because now they need to find the other witches that are hiding in the community. They don't just have their one suspect. And as time goes on, more and more accusations are brought forward in the community. Basically, what you start to see playing out is old disputes, family rivalries, things that have been festering for years are all being brought up during these accusations. The kind of key thing to think about in terms of the Salem Witch Trials, which is kind of the boring part, we might say, the just general civics, you know, colonial history, is the fact that they did not have a charter at this time. And the reason why that's important is because they're basically living in this legal limbo, waiting to see what their court systems are going to look like. Without a charter, they can't elect officials. So they're in this weird limbo, which is also part of the reason why so much is festering in the years leading up to 1692. So in the middle of the witchcraft trials, by the time we get to May of 1692, the charter finally arrives, which is great. But it's going to take some time to really put everything in order to get, you know, reelect officials, rewrite laws. So the governor decides to make an emergency court, the court of Oyer and Terminer. And this court is told, do what you think is best. And they unfortunately think that using a very controversial form of evidence called spectral evidence is appropriate given the situation. So spectral evidence is based on the idea that a witch theoretically 
can project a ghostly version of themselves out of their body and use it to hurt other people. And the way that played out in a courtroom is you could be standing there before the court and have the afflicted fall to the ground, point to the sky and say, up there, I see the specter of Rebecca Nurse. You don't see her, but I can. And that's how I know she's a witch. And that is the evidence that was being used for conviction during the Salem witch trials. So in about four months, as a result, 20 people are executed. 19 people are hanged and one man is pressed to death. And again, that is the most intense witchcraft trial that we see in the English colonies. And one of the things that fiction has kind of imported from the European witch trials is the idea of burning witches, which didn't actually happen in the American witch trials. And do you have any thoughts on why even in Agatha Harkness's story, you know, they're burning witches rather than hanging them? And is there a reason that has made such an impression, do you think? Yeah, so that's a very common trope you see almost every time, particularly in the pop culture depiction of witches today. And burnings did happen. They happened in continental Europe. They happened in Scotland. However, in England and the English colonies, witches were treated like any other felon, and felonies were punished by hanging, so witches were hanged, not burned. However, actually during the Civil War, you start to see this kind of pamphlet war erupting as, you know, the South and the North are arguing back and forth during this very heated political time. And what you see happening is the South publishing pamphlets saying, all right, you Northerners, you need to get off your high horse because you burned witches and killed Quakers during the colonial period. So who are you to preach to us about morals? And I know at least several historians argue that's where the misnomer about burning comes from, because it really just sticks with us in our cultural memory. And of course, that's a very sensational thing to say, you know, The idea of burning someone alive is so violent and so gruesome. So it does kind of make sense that as we continue to talk about this story, that's the punishment that sticks with us. The reason why burning was used in some cases was because witchcraft was considered, you know, a spiritual crime. So for that reason, burning is considered to be very purifying for the soul. But in one book that I read, a historian made the point that burning was actually quite expensive. You needed to be able to purchase enough lumber to burn someone to death. So financially, sometimes that was not feasible for a town to burn their witch, which is one of those things you hear from history and you're just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Rachel, thank you so much for coming on Women of Marvel. Thank you. It's been great talking about this. And uh, I'm excited to see where the witches in the Marvelverse go as time goes on. I loved talking about all that history with Beth and Rachel. I also wanted to know how our creators actually use that context to write our Marvel witches. Rainbow Rowell is currently writing the new She-Hulk series, which I'm so excited to read when it comes out in January. But for the last four years, she's been writing runaways and who better to talk about Nico Minoru than the person who spent so much time with her. Check out our conversation now, but heads up, there are some spoilers if you aren't caught up on Rainbow's Runaways Run. Rainbow, welcome to Women of Marvel. In my conversation with Beth Pollard, she talked a lot about Nico Minoru, and you are really the person closest to Nico these days. 
for those who aren't caught up on Runaways, give us a really quick synopsis of where Nico is now and what she's up to by the end of your run. Sure. I'll see if I can do that without crying because The Runaways is over and I'm sad about it. So Nico Minoru is one of The Runaways. The Runaways discovered that their parents were evil and foiled their plans to lose the earth to a bunch of supervillains is sort of the the short summary. So the comics Runaways, it's really about these kids who are thrown together. The only thing they have in common is that their parents were part of this death cult. And it's about them trying to take care of each other and trying to decide who they are. In my run, I brought them together. They'd been scattered to the 12 winds for many, many years. And Chris Anka and Andres Genale and I, we worked on getting them back together and growing them up a little bit. And Nico's a witch, right? Talk a little bit about her magic and backstory. Nico's parents are evil magicians. She finds this out right before they die, basically. And she discovers the Staff of One, which is one of their evil magician tools. And she takes it on and it becomes her magical tool. But no one ever tells her how it works. So Nico has this staff. It can do almost anything, maybe anything actually, but it can only do it once. And so she can only cast a spell once. And at the beginning, she can only cast a spell if she bleeds, if, if she draws blood. So she has this tool. It's painful. It's powerful. She doesn't know how to use it. Her parents are gone. It's very symbolic of her parents being gone and not, not giving her any tools or any knowledge about herself to navigate the world. So she's this very, very, very powerful, powerful witch, sort of. So in the most recent run of Runaways, Nico discovers that her staff of one is actually another evil magician who her ancestors fought and conquered and then trapped him in the staff. And his name is the one they were using his power. So every time she's casting at someone, she's using this imprisoned magician. And it would be very easy and simple to figure out if he were great, like me, you know, they were evil. So maybe he's a good guy, right? And she should set him free. But no, he's terrible too. And so when she thinks about letting him out, he's like, I'm going to take over the world. You know, you're going to swim in blood. So she's like, oh no, I can't do that. And she keeps him trapped in the staff. But she made a deal with him that she doesn't have to shed blood anymore. But every time she casts a spell, she lets a drop of him into her, into her soul. So every time she uses the staff now, a little bit of this evil magician bleeds into her. So it's a different kind of bleeding, a different kind of sacrifice. And you would think that maybe she would not use the staff knowing that this evil guy is bleeding into her. But no, she keeps having these scenarios where she has to use the staff. So she's letting this corruption into her. At the end of the series, she confesses to her girlfriend that this is all happening. And her girlfriend, Carolina, says, give me the staff. We have to destroy it. And Nika won't do it. And then at the very end, she gives the staff to Carolina, who's leaving the planet, and says, never bring this back, which leaves Nico in a very interesting place because what sort of magician is she without the staff? Oh, that's amazing. I am so sorry we're not going to be getting more Nico from you, but I am excited to see where she lands next. One thing we talked about in the other conversation in this episode is the origin of different witches. So you were talking about the staff, but Nico's magic also comes from her parents, right? So something to think about with Nico and where I was thinking about Nico is that her parents were magicians and she comes from a long line of magicians and sorcery. She's never tapped into that. 
Mm-hmm. She's never thought about what her natural abilities might be or what sort of magician she might be because her parents didn't need that staff to do magic. They did all kinds of interesting magic without that staff. They did this like pair magic, which was really interesting. I don't know what was going on, but the two of them would cast spells together. Mm-hmm. And we've met her great-great-grandmother in another series. So clearly there is magic in her, probably, that she's not using. So I've always thought that she is this very untapped, undeveloped magician. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about her magic as you did explore it. Did you draw on any particular inspirations for how you approached her magic? Yeah. A fun thing about Nico is she was goth before she was witch. So she's always been drawn aesthetically to very witchy goth stuff. And um, Chris Anka, when he was doing the character designs for this run, really dug deep and made her just, you know, so gorgeous and gothy all the time. But that's really disconnected from her actual. It's not like she, you know, sometimes you meet a Marvel witch and they look very gothy and it's because they're part of some sisterhood of witches. Well, that's not Nico. She just shopped at Hot Topic. She loved the aesthetic. And then later she finds out she's a witch. I've never liked it when Nico is written as all-knowing and powerful and like wielding her magic with a lot of confidence because I don't know where that confidence comes from. She's she's only ever 16 to 18 in any of the books. So it doesn't seem to me that she should be confident. And it's part of the fun of Runaways that they don't know what they're doing, that they have Mm -hmm. power and they don't know what to do with it. So definitely the way that I wrote Nico was someone who has a lot of personal confidence and is very resourceful but is always on the edge of out of control because she has so much power and yet it's so unpredictable. You know, if she casts the same spell twice, it'll come back on her and do something weird. So she has to keep in her head every spell she's ever cast. So in a battle, she's a real wild figure. You don't know how things are going to go with Nico. She could be, you know, Galactus or she could turn you all into frogs. You just don't know what's going to happen. Well, and that's a challenge for you, too, as a writer, because, you know, we talk about Nico having to come up with a new word to cast a spell every time and remember every spell she's ever cast. But really, that burden is actually on you. So how did (laughs) how did you kind of approach that? And what was the experience of having to come up with all these spells in new and interesting ways? When I first took the job, I asked if there was a list of Nico spells. Like Mm -hmm. I thought, I always am kind of Hermione in my approach. I always think there's a librarian somewhere who's keeping track of everything. And as you know, that's not a thing at Marvel. (laughs) So I asked the editor, can I get the list of spells that she's cast already? And he's like, there's no list. Although then Kelly Thompson was like, I've got a list. But by that time, I'd already gone through and made my own list. So Kelly gets credit for making a list. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't know about it in time. So I just went through and I made a spreadsheet of all of her spells. And I decided to be very strict with her spells because in the early run, she could only cast a spell, like a freezing spell once. And it didn't matter what the language was. And then later it kind of became, oh, she can cast it in different languages. And I decided to go back to the spirit of she only can cast the intention once. Mm -hmm. So that made it harder on myself, but also harder on Nico. So often someone is saying, you know, we need a freezing spell. She's like, I don't have a freezing spell. Or we need a new heart or we need this. And she's like, oh, I've already used that spell. Somebody says, will you give me a new hairstyle? And she's like, are you kidding? That's the first thing I did. That's the first spell I used. So it's very fun as a writer to have Nico in the moment running through her like files in her head of like, okay, what do I have left that will actually work? Which means she has to be so clever and resourceful. Mm -hmm. If she could go back to her 16 year old self, she would say, 
be so cautious with these spells. Don't use them for dumb stuff, right? Save them for when you need them. But now she's 18. She's already used all the good spells and she's trying to come up with them. Well, there are some who would say, though, that that's the very essence of witchcraft, the cunning, the needing to find a workaround, that that's what magic is, is finding a workaround. So it makes sense that that's kind of how you would approach that. Yeah, and and that's a really good point because it has forced her to become more interesting. I don't think she would be as interesting a person or a character if she just was so powerful she could do anything she wants but she Mm -hmm. has to really think on her feet and she's also very she's taken on a lot of responsibility she sees herself as the person who even though she's the same age as some of these other characters she really takes care of them she's the responsible one and so it's so important to her when she's in in the moment fighting it's important for her to take care of everyone and it really frustrates her when she just doesn't have it um you know at the tip of her fingers but like there was a moment where she needed in this last run she needed to fly and she needed to like knock someone over really fast and she came up with bed knobs and broomsticks which is like a flying bed Mm -hmm. so she does come up with like really clever funny things i think I think it's fun to see her scramble. I like heroes who have to scramble, who don't have all the answers. One of the things that we talked about with some of the other people we interviewed for this episode is how very, very powerful Scarlet Witch is and Mm. perhaps even overly powerful at Mm -hmm. times Scarlet Witch can be. And Mm -hmm. I think you're exactly right that the fun of Nico is the limitations that- For sure. That's where the story comes from. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I did Nico is the star of the first issue that I wrote. One of the first things I wanted to do was bring back her limitations. I think that makes it more fun to read because you as the reader see her getting these messes and you know how limited she is. Like, you know how both how powerful she is and how limited she is. The fun thing about writing a teenager is that they are not settled in a lot of ways. And you're not writing someone who has settled into their habits and settled into their sense of self. And I think the magic is is sort of symbolic of that, that her magic as a character has the potential to really evolve in ways that are realistic. Like you wouldn't have to break the character to make her interesting. You can Mm -hmm. just evolve her in a really beautiful way, I think. So my hope is that Nico as a character and as a witch continues to shift and change as we see her settle into herself and discover more about herself and, and grow up. That's awesome. Thank you so much for chatting with me about Nico Rainbow. Wow. Ellie, those interviews were so good. Yeah, all three of them were so great. So Rainbow and Beth both alluded to the fact that magic in Marvel comes from a lot of different places. In Nico's case, it's an evil magician trapped inside a staff, but also her parents. We've got magical bloodlines. We've got mutants. We've got all kinds of things. But a lot of this magic also has roots in real cultural practices and traditional folk magic. We have some characters like Brother Voodoo and the Santitarians whose magic stem from indigenous practice. Marie Laveau even makes an appearance in the Marvel Universe. That's right. Like, even now, and I say this as a proud native of Louisiana, you know, we have Strange Academy that's being written by Scotty Young. That's an ensemble of characters from different cultures bringing together a lot of their learned and ancestral magic, which is really cool. Also, like, we have new characters, like one of my new favorites, Ava, whose magic comes from an ancestral amulet, like her cousin Umberto, aka Reptile. 
And going back to the actual history for a second, Rachel alluded to some of these cultural practices a little bit when she mentioned Tichuba, who was accused of witchcraft in Salem. No one can actually be sure, but Tichuba was from the Caribbean and was very likely practicing some form of folk magic that was integrated with whatever her religion might have been, because we do find that in a lot of cultures around the world. So I think what we're saying and what I love about this conversation is that Magic has roots everywhere in indigenous cultures from Africa and Latin American countries, the Caribbean, Ireland, and all of these practices are unique to those cultures. Magic is so profoundly ingrained in so many of these cultures and in so many cases, it's practiced alongside religions like Christianity. And, you know, we see that both in the history we've talked about today and obviously in our Marvel stories. Absolutely. Judy, you are going to talk to us a whole bunch next week, right? What have you got for us? Yes. Before we get to that, I just want to say that as part of my research into the book, Super Visible, the story of the women of Marvel, is that there's always been witches working at Marvel. Actually, in the 1970s, Patty Cockrum started at Marvel. But Patty was probably one of the first witches who worked at Marvel. She worked in the bullpen. She actually managed the catalog of all like Marvel character art, one of the first people to do that. She talks about how she wanted to get Halloween off as a holiday. But you definitely have to stay tuned for more when the book comes out next year for our entire conversation with Patty. And speaking of words on paper, the topic that I'm going to explore next week is one of my favorites. And I'm so excited that I'm able to talk about it in the real world fan fiction. So I was really excited to talk to a couple women who write professionally now for Marvel, both pros and comics, got their start writing and reading fanfic in high school. We talked all about it. I'm so excited to bring it for you. Love it. It sounds super fun. Also wrote fanfic in high school. So really here for it. So make sure you tune in next week for Judy's episode about fan fiction. But until then, this is Marvel, your universe. Women of Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Isabel Robertson, Jasmine Estrada, Ellie Pyle, Judy Stevens, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our development manager is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Listen weekly on SiriusXM and on Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.